The local church is at the heart of what God is doing in the world. That means that the people of God in a particular location or community are the means by which God makes his mercy, his grace, his love, his compassion, and his very presence known in that community. It's how the people living there would know who God is and what he's like. And when you read through the New Testament, it's churches that launch and plant and establish other churches. This is how God intends for it to be. And this is why we're passionately committed at Chapel Street Church to becoming a family of neighborhood churches. We made the strategic decision not to build one large campus in one location and hope that people drive from farther away, but to reproduce ourselves in communities and in neighborhoods so that the people living there would know the presence of God. And that's why we're so excited to talk about our fourth campus opportunity. God has given us the place in North Aurora, and God is preparing a people with Pastor Andrew Griffiths and his team as he's assembling to launch this coming fall. And God has also given us the opportunity to make this happen financially. Recently, a very generous private donor has come and said that they would like to commit to matching 50% of the balance of this project, which is $1.1 million. So if we, as a church family, can give $550,000 to $600,000, this person will match that $600,000, and we can launch this campus completely debt-free. What a great opportunity God has given us. What better investment could you think of than to invest in the expansion of God's kingdom by expanding the local church, the way that God makes his presence known in a community? I'm asking everyone who calls Chapel Street Church their home, whether or not you attend the North Aurora campus, would you prayerfully consider what contribution you could make above and beyond your regular giving so that we could launch this campus debt-free this fall? And here's how you can do that. Simply indicate in your check, should you write a check, Neighborhood Church Multiplication. Or if you give online digitally, simply select Neighborhood Church Multiplication as your giving destination. And we'll celebrate together what God does in our midst as we launch the next campus for His glory and for the sake of His gospel. Thank you for being part of the Chapel Street Church family. Well, as Pastor Jeff just mentioned, we're so excited um, what God is doing in our North River campus, in the life of our church, and what he has ahead of us. And so I just want to echo what he said and encourage you to just prayerfully consider what it would mean for you to partner with us in that way. And we're just thrilled for what is ahead of us. As we begin our time today, I just have a question for you that I was interested to get the answer to. So just by a show of hands for you right now, if you would consider yourself to be a stubborn person, just go ahead and raise your hand. You can be proud of it. It's okay. If you are a stubborn person, some of you are like, I'm not stubborn, and there's nothing you can say otherwise. <laughs> I, would, uh, I would definitely put myself in that category, though. If, if my wife were here this morning, I'm sure that she would agree. Um, in fact, I preached this message, message last night, and she was there, and I asked her, and she just cackled in front of the whole church. <laughs> So that was embarrassing. Uh, um, but, but this comes out in a lot of ways in our marriage and in our home. I think uh, the most common one, though, is probably the way that we approach just kind of everyday household chores. Uh, you know, just those things that need to be done. And I think in general, for the most part, we do a good job of working together and serving each other and, you know, trying to put the other's needs in front of our own, which is what all healthy marriages do. Um, until it's time to take out the trash. 
Um, I don't know what it is about that particular chore, but we both just absolutely hate doing it. Um, I saw something online a while ago that, that said marriage is just a lifelong game of who can be more stubborn when it comes to taking out the trash. Um, and that's definitely true for us. And so we'll do whatever we need to to be the one that, that avoids it. Even when, you know, the can is overflowing, we'll just like kind of stack stuff on top. Like it's this really kind of gross game of Jenga that we're playing. Um, and then you'll do a thing like where it seems full, but it's not. So you can just kind of push it down and make like a little bit of room. And sometimes you go and do that, but the other person's already done it. So you've got to like really put some muscle into it. Um, and it's like if you've ever seen the movie WALL-E, you know how in the beginning Wally's just like making little compact boxes of trash? That's kind of what our life looks like. Um, and this is all to save like 30 seconds of time. For, for me, I don't know if this is true for her. Um, for me, though, at some point it stops being about the trash and it starts being about winning. And I just like, my stubbornness kicks in, my competitive nature kicks in. Um, and I'm just like, you know what? Surrender is not an option. I'm going to win this thing, which I think is another thing that marriage is about, right? No? Okay. I'm a little worried that you guys are going to think like we live in a dump, but that's just where we're at right now. See, I think for a lot of us, whether you're as stubborn as I am or maybe as crazy as I am, um, surrender is not something that comes naturally to us, is it? Surrender is not something that we strive for or seek out. It's not something that we would choose, for many of us, surrender is equal to defeat. In fact, a lot of the stories that we love, stories that we read or, or watch or, or see a movie of, is about not surrendering, about overcoming adversity and refusing to give up in the face of difficulty. And yet today, as we return to the book of First Peter that we have been studying, the message that we're going to see is the very thing that we so rarely want to do, to surrender our lives. To God's purposes and God's plans. Some of you might remember that before Palm Sunday and before Easter that we just celebrated, we had begun this series exploring the letter of First Peter, this series called Living Hope. This letter that Peter wrote to these Christian exiles that had been dispersed all around the region, and he had been teaching us these principles. Principles like, when you are in Christ, you are born again. You have been given a living hope. You are called to a holy life. And all of this is built on the cornerstone of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus that we just celebrated on Easter Sunday. Many of you might remember that we've been encouraging you to memorize 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And it's been a couple of weeks, so we're going to put it up on the screen, but I want to just read this aloud with you. And if you haven't memorized, you can just close your eyes or something. Uh, but would you read this with me now? It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If anyone asks, we all had that memorized, and it was very impressive. Now we continue this series, or this, this series and this letter in 1 Peter chapter 2, and look at verse 11 and 12 with me just quickly. This is kind of going to set the tone for what we're going to be talking about today. And basically what he says is that as the exiles that you are, you have been called to a different kind of life. You've been called to abstain from fleshly desires, to keep your conduct honorable. In other words, you have been called to surrender your life and the way that you live it why? To bring glory to God. 
to bring glory to God. This is what it means to be surrendered, and this is what we're going to be exploring for these next two weeks as Peter really dives into this message of what it means to live a surrendered life. And so we're going to pick it up at verse 13, and let me read this for you. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile and returned. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." So in this passage here, there are just a few things that I want to point out to you and and draw out of this passage as we talk about what it means to live a surrendered life. And the first is being surrendered to God's will. Um, A a while back, Judy and I have been in a a small group for a couple of years now, and a while back, um, our group got into probably the fiercest debate that we had ever experienced. And it wasn't some deep question about God or or like a theological debate, anything like that. It was about the unwritten rules of etiquette when flying on an airplane. Very serious stuff. Um, But we found this online poll or something where they asked a series of questions of whether or not you live by or whether you submit to these rules when flying on a plane. And so I thought it would be fun for us to go through this together and see if it will tear us apart as well. (laughs) So we'll start with an easy one. Maybe. I don't know. Um, If you are flying with your significant other and you get separated, it's fine to ask to switch seats. So how many of you would say, yeah, that's fine. I agree with that. Okay, who would say no? Anybody? Okay, mostly agreement on that. Um, How about this one? It is fine to clap when the plane lands. (laughs) Who would say yes, it's fine to clap when the plane lands? And who, rightly, would say no? (laughs) Listen, all I'm going to say is that no one claps when I do my job, and the same thing is true for you. That's all I'm saying. All right, let's keep moving. How about this one? The middle seat should get both armrests. Who would say yes? Who would say no? They have to sit in the middle. That's punishment enough. Come on now. All right, it's fine to recline your seat even if someone is sitting directly behind you. How many say yes? How many say no? This one's always like split 50-50. I haven't decided how I feel about it. I'll let you know. Um, Last one. (laughs) 
This one, we're going to talk about this one. It is okay to take your shoes off during a long flight. (laughs) Who says yes? All right, everyone else, look around. Don't fly with these people. (laughs) We are not in your living room. We're on a plane. All right, we need to move on. I'm getting upset. <laughs> See, I always think this stuff is so interesting, and, and our, again, our group fought about this for like two hours. It was hilarious. Uh, but I always think you can learn something about how people respond, and not just to unwritten rules, but to written rules, any kind of authority, really, especially when that authority is in conflict with what we want, with our own desires, with our own stubbornness or our own selfishness. We've probably all experienced something like that, right? We've all experienced being at airport security and having to throw away toothpaste because it's more than three ounces. Even though we know it's not dangerous, it's just part of flying. We've all, maybe not all, but many of us maybe have driven the speed limit when we've thought that it should be higher. How many times have you sat at a red light late at night with no other traffic around wanting to just go? And some of you are like, yeah, I do. I just go. (laughs) And yet this idea of how we respond to authority, I think, is what Peter is getting at here in this first section. Let me read again just a couple of verses, starting in verse 13. It says, Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Now, just take a minute with me, and if you can, try to put yourself in the shoes of the people that were reading this letter for the first time. These Christians that were being persecuted, that had been exiled because of their faith that were being mistreated, and there was slander, and there were lies going around. And and try to imagine these words. Look at verse 17 with me. These last four sentences. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. In other words, love your brothers and sisters in Christ, the, the family of God. Fear God. All three of these make sense. You know, they're not always easy, but it makes sense, and it lines up. But then look at this last one. Honor the emperor. Honor your enemy. Honor the one who thinks that you are what's wrong in the world. And not just that, but in verse 13, be subject to, literally to order yourself under this authority who not only thinks and believes differently than you, but is actively against you, who is persecuting you, who is oppressing you, who hates you, who will go on to kill you because of your faith. Be subject to and honor. How am I supposed to submit to this type of authority? This goes against every part of our stubborn and selfish nature, and yet it's a theme that we see throughout the New Testament. Look with me to Romans chapter 13. This is Paul talking, and he says something similar. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And again, this is where the the context of what we're reading is really important. And we have to remember that this Christian faith, these Jesus followers were so new and people were still deciding what they thought about them. There were a lot of misconceptions about the Christian faith at this time. And one of them was born out of the fact that these Christians put Jesus over Caesar. 
And they didn't worship anyone else besides Jesus. And because of that, they were considered dangerous and even treasonous. The ironic thing is that Paul may have actually contributed to this. Back in Acts chapter 4, excuse me, Peter. Uh, Peter and John were arrested for preaching, and, and they were told to stop, and they basically said, do what you need to, but we will continue to preach. And so I think what Peter is trying to teach us here is that unless it's an issue that would lead to disobedience to God, this is how to respond when you encounter ignorance and foolishness and slander. That your initial response is not to fight back, not to become angry, not to become bitter, not to retreat into your own little world, but to surrender to God's will. To surrender to God's will by being subject to the leaders that he has established. That we honor God by honoring the emperor. Even when we don't enjoy what they believe, even if we don't agree with who they are, again, up until the point that it leads to disobedience to God. Now, there's something that I've um, noticed, especially recently, not only in, in our church, but in just the church and even in my own heart, that I just wanted to talk about for a minute. I've noticed for many just almost a, a sense of, of fear or concern about the state of our country and the state of the church in our country. As it seems like our, our culture is changing at faster and faster speeds every year, and, and these terms get brought up, and, and every time we hear one of them, our, our defenses just immediately go up. We hear things like religious freedom, religious persecution, things like cancel culture, and immediately we just hold on tight and we get fearful or upset. And Peter here is speaking to a group that had all of those fears realized in a scale that we can't even imagine. They were experiencing mistreatment because of their faith. They were being persecuted for their faith. And what he says here is important, but just as important is what he doesn't say. Note that he doesn't say, fight back and stand up. He doesn't say, become angry and bitter. He doesn't say, retreat into your own little bubble. What does he say? Verse 15, that this is the will of God. Do good. Do good for others. Serve others. Love others without condition. And the ignorance of the world will be revealed for what it is. This is our response to a changing world. Not that it's wrong to speak into politics or to speak into government. That's all a good thing, but it is not what the church was built on. And it is not our hope. This is our hope, and this is what I want to say to anyone that might be concerned or fearful for what is ahead. That the origin story of the church is that a small group of people 2,000 years ago found themselves in a nation filled with hatred and ignorance. And yet they understood the power of loving their neighbors. And it changed the world forever. And this is our hope, that it can happen again. It can happen again if we understand the power of loving our neighbors. And this is the will of God, that our community would look at our lives and look at our church, and they would say, we don't always agree with what you say, and we don't always believe what you believe, but we cannot argue with how you love your neighbors. This is what it means 
to be surrendered to the will of God. That brings us to the second thing I want to look at with you, the second aspect of a surrendered life, being surrendered to God's call. I wonder if you've ever had uh, the experience of having a, a bad teacher or a bad coach or maybe even a bad boss in your life. There's a joke I can make, but I'm not going to make it because we record these services, and I love all of my bosses. Back in high school, though, I, I uh, was on my school's basketball team, and um, I loved playing. I loved the sport. It was so much fun until we got a new coach who the, the best way to describe him would be to think of a very stereotypical military training officer. Like, this guy loved to yell. Um, anytime we did something wrong, he would stop practice or he would call a timeout, and he would just tear into us. Um, most of our practices would just be running laps for all the things we did wrong. And, and I have a, a very clear memory of being in a game one time, and he called a timeout, and the gym was pretty much empty other than a few parents, and the gym was absolutely silent other than the sound of his screams just, like, echoing around. <laughs> To the point that some of the players on the other team told us that they felt bad for us during the game. <laughs> now, some people respond well to this. Um, I am not one of those people. And it just ruined the game for me. I, I just lost my passion for it, and I ended up not playing the following year. Maybe you've had a similar situation in a, in a sport or in a job or whatever it may be, where you've found yourself in a situation that seems unfair or unjust and you've had to decide what to do, whether you want to leave, whether you want to stick it out. And, and for many of us, when we read this next section of Peter's message, we're going to want his teaching to be something different than what it is. Look with me to verse 18. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now again, for a lot of us, this is not the message that we want to hear. We want Peter to say, Servants, be free of your masters as you are free in Christ. Or better yet, masters, free your servants, or at least treat them well and pay them a good wage. For many of us, it's impossible to read scripture like this without thinking about and recognizing and grieving over the sin of slavery in our own country as well as the justification that some Christians would use using this verse and others to condone it. And we know that any scripture that is used for hatred or used for racism goes against the very message of the gospel and cannot be excused. It's important to acknowledge that. It's also important, though, to recognize the differences and recognize the context and the history in which Peter was writing, recognizing the system that he was writing about. He's writing to these believers here, and he addresses specifically those that were called bond servants, those who worked in the household of a person with great wealth or power. Now, a bond servant could be anyone from someone who worked in a field to someone who worked as a teacher or even a doctor. Some were treated very well. Others were treated very poorly. 
It was not a system based on race, as we often think of in our culture, although they were expected to worship the same gods as their master. And many people think that this is the cause of the unjust suffering that he's talking about. The Roman Empire was completely dependent on this type of system. Some historians believe that up to a third of all of the people in the Roman Empire were bondservants. And so Peter here is writing to a group of persecuted people who were mostly in that system, and he is talking to them, and he recognizes that they have no voice, they have no representation, and they have no path to enact change. And so I don't think it's fair to say that he is condoning this type of injustice. He's not allowing it, but rather recognizing that any type of encouragement or any call to freedom would only lead to greater persecution and probably to their death. Peter is saying that if we are going to stand up to this injustice that we see in the Roman Empire, it's not going to be met with a show of strength. It's going to take something far greater, far more subversive, something that we see in the example of Christ. It's going to take enduring sacrificial love. This is, I think, the difference between making a really big crater with a bunch of dynamite and the formation of the Grand Canyon. The beauty of the Grand Canyon is that it didn't come from a big explosion, but it came from the consistent presence of water and wind. And over time, a wonder was born. See, I think for a lot of us, we want God to just immediately explode everything that we see wrong in the world and in our lives. And yet history tells us, and the gospel tells us, and Peter tells us, is that more often than not, God uses the consistent presence of the church to change the world. That he is calling us to have a patient and persevering faith, to look to the future. This is the kind of faith that God uses to change the world. This only happens, though, when we understand something when we embrace these two seemingly opposite teachings that we see in verse 16. Look at verse 16 with me. It says that when we are in Christ, we are both completely free, that we are free from sin, that we are free from a future without God, that that a servant that knows Christ is ultimately freer than a master who doesn't. And yet we have been called to use that freedom to be a servant of God. And this is where I want to be careful, because what I'm not saying is that it's wrong to leave a job or a situation. I'm not saying that this is a call to remain in an an abusive place. I'm not saying that slaves shouldn't be freed. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. So, here's what I think this is trying to teach us. Here's the principle that I think we can take. That when you have been made free in Christ, your calling will never change. Regardless of your location, regardless of your vocation, regardless of any circumstances or any injustice that you might be experiencing. Your calling is to use your freedom as a servant of God, to see gospel opportunity where the world sees oppression, to preach to your persecutors with word 
and with action. To remain faithful and to persevere when the world mocks you and treats you differently because of your faith. To be willing to do good and suffer in order to bring glory to God. And in verse 21, we see why. Because we have a Savior that was willing to do the same thing for us, for you and for me. That brings us to the final piece that I want to look at with you, the the last point of surrender, surrendered to God's Son. We'll pick up at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter's been building this argument that you should submit to authority and that you should be faithful in sufferings to bring glory to God. And then he shows us the example of Christ, which we must look at here. Because what Peter is saying is that if you want to experience freedom, if you want to be free from sin and free from fear and free from your past, it comes through one way, through becoming a servant of God, by surrendering everything in your life to him. And then he gives us three quick examples of what it means to be a servant of God. Number one, a servant of God has Christ as their example. He says this in verse 21, and he goes on to describe it in most of this passage, and it may sound familiar to you as what we just remembered on Good Friday, that when Jesus, the innocent one, was sentenced to death, he did not revile and he did not threaten, but was an innocent one willing to die so that we might live. This is the example that we have been given. This is what we have been called to. In Matthew 24, verse 9, Jesus says to his disciples, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. As servants of God, this is our example, that if Jesus suffered, if Jesus experienced injustice, then there's a good chance that we will as well. Number two, a servant of God has Christ as their shepherd. Verse 25 talks about this idea of being a sheep that had gone astray and returning to your shepherd. And in John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. To have Jesus as your shepherd means being reliant on and being known by him, allowing him to guide you and be the strength of your life, not trying to do everything on your own. Trusting that he will provide for you. And then number three, a servant of God has Christ as their overseer. And that word overseer translates to supervisor or ruler. It's a word often used when talking about church leadership, talking about an elder or a bishop in a church. The idea is God is sending Christ not just to be our good friend, not just to be our example, not just to be our shepherd, but to be our king as well. That he sets the rule for our lives. And we orient ourselves under that. So, as we close today, here's the question for you. Is there something in your life that you need to surrender 
to God. As you look at having Christ as your example, Christ is your shepherd. Christ is your overseer. Is there something in your life that, similar to my trash cans at home, has been piling up that you just need to let go of? You need to clear out of your life and surrender to him. The truth of this message, the truth of what Peter is telling us is that freedom comes when we let go and let him take over our lives. When we stop holding on to our idea of what the future will be when we stop holding on to what we want for our kids, when we trust him with our health, with our finances, with everything that we are just tempted to hold on tightly to, and when we give it to him. He has set the example in our lives. He is our shepherd, and he is our king that has good things in store for you. This is what it means to have freedom to be a servant of God. So live in that freedom today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we are just grateful that you have set the example for us. We're grateful for your love. We're grateful that you are a shepherd and you provide for us. God, I'm grateful that we get to be a subject in your kingdom. And right now, I just pray that you would allow each one of us to just recognize and surrender what it is that we need to. To recognize that we need to surrender to your will and surrender to your call because you are good and you are worthy and you have good things in store for us. God, this is our prayer. Give us the grace, give us the strength that we need to pursue you more. We pray this in your name. Amen.